Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I'm joined by Sarah Beijung of York University. Sarah, a special question for this episode. Are you a cat person? Have you ever owned a cat? <laughs> or are you a dog person? Are you not a pet person? I, 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 I am an all and nothing person. I, I grew up with cats. I had a cat in grad school. I then raised kids and a dog simultaneously, and now I am pet free. Interesting. Do you consider yourself a cat person? No. <laughs> I am joined also by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, yeah. cat person, dog person, not a pet person. Which one? I am allergic to cats, so I'm I... <laughs> definitely not a cat person. But I have a daughter who loves, loves, loves cats. Uh, so, ah. you know, nothing makes her happier than a cat. Nice, nice. Um, I don't think I'm really a pet person, but I have owned a cat. I had a cat for a year in college. Um, and my mother had cats for years. So I think I'm more of a cat person than a dog person, but I'm really not much of a pet person overall. I feel like I'm happiest just not taking care of an animal. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, listeners, let this be your clue as to the the topic of this special episode of On Tap. It's all about cats. It's just about Cats, Cats the 2019 movie, uh, Cats the 1981 musical, um, <laughs> yes. Old Possum's book of, is it Curious Cats? Old Possum's book of Practical, practical Cats. Practical, practical Cats. cats. Um, it's all cats today, guys. We have all seen Cats the movie, um, and we're, we're processing, we're dealing, we're, we're coping. So... Before we get to CATS, um, applications are open for the Mellon School of Theater and Performance Research at Harvard, that uh, very exciting summer program. The 2020 session is on new frontiers in theater and performance research. I believe the deadline for applying to that is March 1st, though um, check online and make sure. Similarly, the deadline for proposals for Astor 2020 in New Orleans uh, on the theme of theater and performance after repetition is coming up February 1st. Actually, um, as you're listening to this, the deadline may have already passed. I think we'll probably release this uh, January 31st or February 1st with any luck. Anyways, if you're hearing this, you already know about the deadline or it's probably too late. But Astor's going to be great this year. Looks like a fantastic theme. Rounding out the trio of upcoming events announcements, Circe at Brown University is coming up. Uh, Circe will be March 6th and 7th at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, featuring a live recording of On Tap, this very podcast. We're excited to return to to Circe. Um, Registration for that conference is open and we would love to see some diehard On Tap listeners in the audience when we record. The only other news item I had for this episode uh, actually was announced today that SAG-AFTRA, the the big union of actors for screen and television and radio artists, just released new guidelines for the use of intimacy coordinators on set. So this follows the um, increased interest in intimacy coordination in theater and other um, performance-oriented art forms, uh, both in professional and academic settings. Um, So that's something that is an interesting development in the field and something that we're following. So let's get right into it, guys. We all have seen the 2019 Tom Hooper-directed musical film, Cats. And let's sort of ease ourselves into it. Um, I'd like each of us to maybe take a moment and just say, prior to seeing the film, what was your experience or knowledge of Cats, the theatrical show? Uh, Harvey, what about you? I will. I will confess that I knew very little about uh, Cats, the theatrical show. I mean, when I, I, I was aware of it as a cultural phenomenon. I had seen the touring ads, you know, when they come into town and heard the radio um, advertisements for it, but it, it didn't spark my interest. I will admit, and I might say, passively, refused to see it uh, until this moment. Until this moment, uh, and I got to admit, I, I really regret having missed previous opportunities to see Cats. So. But yeah, that's, I, that's my background with cats. It's, I'm, I, I'm a cats newbie. 
<laughs> I'm very interested yes. in your experience being totally new. Um, I'll, I'll go next. And, and Harvey, my experience is a lot like yours. I always knew what it was growing up. Um, it was. Mo- I, I think I first encountered it sort of as the object of um, you know parody and scorn from you know theatrical um, uh, aficionados. I think I was a little bit scared of it as a child because it had you know the poster. It's this sort of like these two cat <laughs> eyes. The images for it were all of these you know the sort of um, amazing makeup, but it was sort of a dark and scary world. Um, I had never seen any version of it. I had never listened to a cast recording of it. I was aware of an old Saturday Night Live weekend update sketch where, um, or maybe it was a, you know what it was? It was a commercial parody where the idea was that there's new there's no new show on Broadway and it's featuring a famous hypnotist. And, and there are all these interviews with people coming out of the show and they're saying, I loved it. It was better than Cats. I'm going to see it again and again. So it was like the object, it was just this sense of like this thing that is the biggest show ever. Um, And so my first introduction to Cats as a full piece of art was two weeks ago in a theater in St. Louis. Um, A movie theater, right? The movie theater, yes. Yeah, the movie theater. I've never seen it on stage. Sarah, I have a feeling you have background with this show. (laughs) So as as longtime listeners to the podcast will know, uh, I was raised in a culture of musical theater. And so my first interaction with Cats was actually, as as were many of my early theatrical experiences, with the actual um, original double LP uh, of of the Broadway cast recording. And uh, those of you who remember uh, long playing records um, and albums, they came with amazing art and often they had the lyrics written in the inside. And one of the great tragedies of first the CD and now of course the MP3 is the loss of the material object of the the, the record uh, cover, right? Um, and of course, we, we still have LPs, right? Album and vinyl is kind of making a comeback, but it's very selective recordings that get that get um, pressed that way and get made that way. And I find that, you know, classical musical theater. So I still have um, a lot of my original uh, vinyl albums uh, from when I was a kid. So I used to listen to, um, the, at least the first the first album I usually got bored by the second so I had uh, <laughs> over and over and over and over again and I would listen to it and imagine what was happening on stage because Cats of course is the musical stage musical is really about dancing um, there there's there's really no plot especially in the in the early versions um, there's no uh, there's not a lot of action there. It's really about kind of somewhat clever wordplay and we can debate the extent of the cleverness (laughs) of the wordplay. Um, uh, But it's really about about dancing and and you can hear that in the music if you've never seen the show because there are big chunks where the music is telling you that something really exciting is happening. But if you're only listening to it, (laughs) you you only have your imagination to. So so I actually credit this with how I got interested in, in making theater is that I would listen to these Broadway cast albums and I would look at the pi- the pictures and I would listen to these parts in the music that would tell you like something really amazing is happening now, but I would have no idea what it was. Um, you know, I had a completely alternate plot for Evita for years. Right? I had no idea what was happening in that show and I had this whole other idea of what that, that musical was about. Um, uh, so, so I found that, so that was my first introduction to Cats. And then of course I saw it on stage as a kid several times. Um, which production, like touring shows coming uh, from California? Did you go to, did you see it in New York? Uh, no, I never, I never saw it in New York. Um, I saw it. Yes. I saw, I saw a touring production that came through Sacramento. Um, and then I saw, um, another version. I want to say, oh no, I did. I saw it with my kids when we were visiting Sacramento, Sacramento Music Theater, um, because my dad, of course, um, again, as longtime listeners will know, is a puppeteer, and he had taught um, uh, folks who had done the costumes for an, a revival of Cats at, at Sacramento Music Theater in the summer. So we got, so we, I saw that with the kids, and it was one of these instances where I turned to my boys and I'm like, isn't that amazing? Isn't this wonderful? Aren't you having a great time? And they kind of couldn't believe that anyone ever thought that this was like a magical <laughs> evening of theater. Um, 
So, but I, I have very fond memories of Cats as well as appreciating all of the parody and of course all of the absurdity right. um, uh, of Cats. And, and so I may be, I don't know, a weird intersection. Uh, I also then wrote on poetic drama and poetry and theater. And so I had equal affection for, for T.S. Eliot's other work as yeah. I did for the adaptation uh, that became uh, Cats. Yeah, well, and let's not bury the lead. You're published on Cats. You have a chapter <laughs> in the 2009 uh, Wiley Blackwell um, uh, companion to T.S. Eliot about the T.S. largely about the T.S. Eliot poem, um, uh, Old Possum's Guide to Practical Cats, and some great writing in that essay on the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. So there's a high degree of contrast between Harvey and my experience of this this entity on the one hand and yours on the other. And I'm very excited to dive further into it. Um, yes, I, so, I, I will just add that I learned about cats you know, by reading Sarah. Yeah. 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 As a critical text, uh, I learned about cats as I, being I think, worthy of sophisticated, high-level, deeply yes. engaged... Uh, thought-provoking scholarship. Yeah. Well, do you want well, to hear a funny story about that essay? Podcast. Um, sure. Let's. Here, let's here's get, my let's... very brief funny story about this. Is uh, uh, David Chinitz, who edited that, actually asked me if I would do this um, at a at a meeting of the T. S. Eliot Society, and if I remember correctly, David perhaps will will let me know if I am wrong. He he said, you know, do you have any interest in writing um, about about uh, you know, Old Possum's book of Practical Cats and the musical Cats, I can't find anybody else who's willing to do it. <laughs> and at the time, I think I, you know, untenured, you know, I'm like, I'll do anything to get published. Sure, yes, of course I, I will find something to write about. Well, Sarah, I, again, I, I want to move down the, the um, topics in order, but I have to say this essay, and I let me, let, let this not suggest that I didn't already have a real esteem for you as a scholar, um, uh, as scholar of modernism, of, of digital performance, of new media. But this uh, this chapter is amazing. There's there's close reading of the poetics of the book. There's historicist context. There's there's analysis of biography, and there's intermedial uh, comparisons. And it's it's a exemplary work of critical scholarship in all levels and in about 10 pages I, I was blown away by how much I like this it's not that I didn't expect to think it was good but um, it's really I love it I think I'm gonna assign it um, um, if I have an opportunity but let's let's keep on track let's not make this just um, mutual admiration society um, for listeners who like Harvey and I didn't really know much about cats previously and also have not um, shall we say, uh, s- signed up for the movie. One of us needs to give a synopsis of the film version, which I believe closely tracks with the synopsis of the Andrew Lloyd musical, though I was a bit surprised to pick up from Sarah's comment earlier that there are multiple versions of the musical, an early and a late version. But Harvey, do you want to sign up to tell the uh, give the audience a synopsis of Cats the movie? Yes, I do. Uh, so, <laughs> so a, as I understand it, now, I, I will admit I watched it with my two kids. Uh, it's not easy. It's not and, an easy movie to synopsize. And, yeah. and my, my son, Zeke, who is 10 years old, uh, uh, afterwards declared, there is no plot to this movie. Uh, and, 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 and my daughter, who is five, looked at it and was just like, I don't know what to say, you know, because it's just, you know, it, I don't, I, it, it might have been just paradise, sort of humans becoming cats. I don't know. But anyway, yeah. uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the plot line, uh, the storyline of this is that there is a cat, uh, the white cat who is <laughs> kidnapped, uh, who is then sort of thrown, I guess, into an alleyway and uh, is then um, encounters other cats, you know, who then tell <laughs> yeah. her about uh, the Jellicle Ball uh, in which, um, you know, one cat, uh, that's Deuteronomy, uh, gets to uh, decide, you know, which person gets to ascend uh, to cat heaven to then be reincarnated as uh, whatever they want to be, I guess. Uh, and, you know, cat by cat, different types of cat uh, introduce themselves, each with a number in a very much of a, re- of, a, of a review variety style, you know, all different forms of songs. And... 
there's one evil cat, uh, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the cat's name. McCavity. McCavity. Uh, McCavity cat, uh, you know, who's introduced, um, you know, earlier, you know, in, in a number of occasions, but has the best sort of, you know, fan introduction via t uh, Taylor Swift, um, you know, at the end of the film. And he sort of kidnaps people, leaves the, kidnaps cats, uh, leaves them on a, on a barge. Uh, they ultimately get rescued thanks to um, the magic cat. Uh, uh, Mr. Mistopheles. Mr. Mistopheles. Uh, and um, in the end, it's the Jennifer Hudson cat, um, Isabella, you, know, <laughs> you know, who gets who, who gets who gets the glamour uh, cat, who who wins, um, who, who gets selected. Um, so that's that's my that's my 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 uh, uh, that's my summary. <laughs> I think you nailed it. I think you did better than I mean. I had a better handle on the names of those cats because this thing has soaked into my brain. Yes. I mean, I saw it one time, and I've been prepping for the podcast, but I initially was so kind of stunned by the experience, that I, I and then began to realize over the last couple of weeks that the songs have crept into my brain. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, Sarah, do you have any notes on that synopsis? I felt like it was pretty much on point. It, it is. The only thing to say is that um, the film version really strengthens what, what very thin plot there is, um, and... Uh, and introduces the barge, um, uh, which was a sort of weird bit of, 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 of fantasy, fantasy uh, on top of what is can only be described as, as weird bits of fantasy. Um, <laughs> I will say the film, and, and if folks haven't seen the, have, have only seen one and not the other, the, what, what I think is really interesting about the film is that the, it literalizes a lot of the references that are in the song lyrics and in the original poems. And in, in doing so, it, it kind of undercuts some some of the original wit, right? So Mr. Mistopheles is a magic cat um, because, and one of the things is like, you know, you think something's missing, but then it's out on the lawn, right? And if you think about that in terms of an actual um, cat, uh, right? It's like cats steal things and they kind of hide them. Like it's not really magic, right? But it's sort of red as magic. But in this version, of course, we have in the film version, uh, Mr. Mistopheles runs around and actually tries to like revive and bring back people from the barge through his what seems to be very genuine magic, um, and it and so there were like some weird weird shifts there. Um, though I will say, especially and I remember this from when I was writing the essay, um, the songs are probably the most profound earworms yeah. that I have ever experienced. And even just having Harvey say the villain, and in my own head. Right, McCavity. I immediately like it's like da 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 da, oh. da. <laughs> you know, and it's like I I'm like so it's it's it, any any brief reference immediately takes me in yeah. into the, into like full fledged musical number, no matter how long it's been, and I probably could still sing badly most of it from from childhood memory. Yeah, I, I have seen the film exactly one time and I have had no other no other experience of the music at all and I have had the chorus from Magical Mr. Mistopheles playing through my head for two straight weeks and that's incredible that's like kind of a feat um, of musical composition well, it's, um, also, it's also that you know the lyrics repeat again and again and yeah again, it's true, right? it's, like true it's just yeah. like the same line like 40 times so, so yeah like it yeah it's it, true it's I've, I've had the same challenge it's, it's just been echoing in my head yeah. It's actually running right now in the background as I'm yeah. talking. I'm with you. Um, so so we, we have a grasp on what happens in this film, though I do want to emphasize that the structure of the um, Jellicle ball and the selection of a cat to go to the heavy side layer, a.k.a. the afterlife, this is a this is a death cult. Like, these cats are choosing one of their number to basically – be sacrificed? I mean, th th is there another reading of this possible that other than the cat with the most sort of pathetic story or the most touching story is the one who is selected to go and die? I mean, that's it, right? Well, I mean, again, it kind of plays on the on the popular myths about cats, right? So if cats have nine lives, 
mm-hmm. right? There, there is a way of reading it. And of course, we know that Eliot was also really interested in reincarnation and Buddhism and um, different kinds of Eastern philosophies. Um, you know, he read about them uh, as a philosopher, you know, in, in the context of philosophy during his undergraduate um, degrees, and he re- returned to it in certain other references and other of his plays. So there is a sense in which um, you can read it as a death cult, or perhaps it, given that cats have nine lives, they are condemned to a kind of reincarnation in which the heavy side layer is a form of nirvana in which they are then released from the the burdens of of uh, of reincarnation and and uh, and material mortal existence and and can achieve a kind of divine you know paradise and understanding and it kind of gets conflated with you know a kind of that that sense of the buddhist uh philosophy of nirvana with the christian ethos of um of the afterlife being a form of paradise right so you actually have these two things that are put together um so the the sort of least among you right which goes with the kind of narrative of who gets selected mm-hmm. follows a kind of christian ethos of right um you know the lowest shall be exalted and to suffer in the you know in a mortal existence is to achieve divine um, existence after death with this idea of being released from uh, the burdens of, of reincarnation and AKA one's nine lives into a post-life, a post-life paradise. You are really elevating this material. Yeah, sir, it is. And it well, is. I mean, I, in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> though I will say, but it's one of the, th- it's one of the curious ways in which this thing is deceptively profound and meaningful it, it it seems on the surface that it is just weapons grade inanity and that it is trying to make you insane with how silly and confusing it is and then afterwards you're like this is kind of an incredible story of pathos and a kind of um there's a kind of life philosophy that you could build around it but but we we digress we digress one of the major points of critical reception to the film is the digital effects and I want to delve into this a little bit because it it, it comes into how this piece of uh, uh, art transitions from poetry on the page into a theatrical version and then how it goes from a theatrical version into a film version. But there's a heavy tr- use of digital effects in this film. Um, and I wonder, Sarah, again, for the benefit of the of the listening audience who has not seen it, if you could just describe... Um, from the screen, what is going on with the fur? Gosh. Um, well, what I would do is, if, if for anyone who has not seen this, and, and I, I, I don't even know if these folks exist, but um, <laughs> they do, uh, they you do. should at least see the trailer, right? Because because the yeah. rollout of of Cats was not simply the the release of the of the full length film. Earlier in the fall, there was a trailer, and that actually attracted quite a bit of attention because it really freaked people out. Um, and I mean, the the fur is really is really very odd, right? So people's bodies are completely kind of covered in fur, except that we often get the dancers' hands and feet um, are are left as human. Um, and there were apparently they were rushing to finish the film. And so there, not all of the digital effects were were completely done. So there were actually they did a they did a re-release or a re a patch. Um, I believe that I saw up here the first version, um, in which you saw more of human hands and human feet. I found the feet to be the most kind of unnerving um, component. Um, and instead of kind of you know going with the kind of theatrical costuming, which was the original Broadway, and you can see that in pictures online. Um, of the, uh, you know, of the of elaborate wigs and and headpieces to kind of build out the head and create the ears. Here, the digital basically strips the the human features and removes the ears, really isolating the face, and then just putting like digital um, ears on top that move sometimes independently of what the actor is doing. Um, yeah. So those become. A kind of weird addendum because of course when they're filming all of this in, in in green screen or motion capture or whatever you know various technologies that they're doing um you know the actors the dancers aren't doing this right um so they don't know where their tail is or what the ears are doing so it um and there's also this weird version in which the fur sh- kind of shimmers mm-hmm. um but it every every cat every character is a little bit different so there's also a very weird 
consistency in terms of who gets animated how and and then and then of course some of the cats wear wear clothes um, <laughs> I, and I'm I, I I'm trying to convey yes, the air quotes. air quotes air quotes going on so some of the clothes like you know Gus the theater cat wears a, a shabby jacket which is has, has apparently been sewed for him by a human because it has enormous buttons the size of dinner plates um, but then other cats like Deuteronomy appear to be wearing a, a close relative. Um, (laughs) It is a nice fur coat. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a weird, is like, you know, she's wearing like a member of the family. Anyway, so there are a few weird choices like that. And then when McCavity at the end uh, takes off his his coat, um, there's a a fairly strange eroticism of Idris Elba and, and his fur. Um, sans coat. Anyway, so that's uh, that's as best as I can do with the digital effects until you see it. Yeah, one one of the reviews we read, which we'll post online from the Guardian, which was done beautifully in uh, Elliot style verse, made reference to the sort of lack of genitals that is hard to ignore on the in the case of some of the of the performers, the male performers. The, I hadn't noticed the thing about the ears. I had noticed, of course, the the cat ears on the top of the head, which I thought that was actually kind of cool. It's a real cat will be able to independently pivot its ears and point them in the directions of things it's listening to. So they would do that. What I didn't notice was that they took the human ears off the side of the head. Mm. That's remarkable. Um, Yeah. And the the mixture of clothing and non-clothing is interesting. I felt that there was another thing going on. Maybe this is independent of fur, but it was the way that the, the dance and the choreography was altered in some cases so that as I think, um, uh, Harvey has said, and, and Sarah mentions in her article, Cats the Musical is really a dance show. And if you watch, as I have now, clips of theatrical productions of the musical, the choreography is, it, it's cool. Like it's like the the cat movement of the cast is something that has been created in a way that it's compelling. It's not too literal, but there are, you know, sort of elements of feline qualities that the actors are all doing. In the movie, there is some of that. Like Francesca, Francesca Hayward is moving in a way that's you know cat-like, and you, you get that. But then they're also doing these things where they make the performers do impossible things. I believe with with digital effects, so that there you'll just get these sort of uncanny moments where you realize, oh, a human performer couldn't quite do that. There, there's one shot which I can't remember what it was or which cat it was where someone is on all fours and they appear to be their their torso is low to the ground they're crawling and it doesn't look cat-like or human-like it looks like something out of a horror movie you know like a creepy thing in the attic that's like human but not sort of wending its way towards you and i don't know about you guys but i felt like this was one of the major reasons why this movie failed which is that you can't ignore the digital enhancement to the movement and so on the one hand, you get these uncanny and creepy moments where that's not a human movement that I'm seeing. But then consequently, also, there is a lot of, I believe, performance capture of amazing dancers. Francesca Hayward, um, Les Twins, the, the the famous hip-hop dancing twins. And because you know you're seeing something heavily processed with digital effects, I don't even appreciate what the human dancers are really doing because I can't tell if it's real or not. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's less about um, the movement. It's more about the digital effect. Yeah, and this is where I think that the word uncanny uh, is is quite accurate because you, you, the viewing experience is you truly you, you truly fall into that uncanny valley. You know that that sense of 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 being sort of thrown off by you know that split between the familiar and the live. Uh, so that you know, if you think about sort of the scholarship around the, the Uncanny Valley, which is often tied into prosthetics, right, and robotics, uh, in this case, you know, so like, can a prosthetic hand look like um, um, a flesh and blood hand, for example? And 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 that sense of recognition, but 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 the but the touch means coldness, for example, uh, you know, creates a shock in you. I think in this case, it's like it works in the complete opposite, where the hand is the hand, <laughs> you know, where you're looking at it, you're like, there's a human hand right there in front of in front of me. Uh, and yet this is not a human, it's a cat, but it seems human-like, and its silhouette is like a human body, you know, but yet it's missing certain, it's missing its genitalia, right? So it's this weird cat, castrated human, real hand, not real. 
And that's the thing that I find just really jarring. So, and if you're watching it, and you're noting the fact that these are recognizable celebrity figures. So we all know what Taylor Swift looks like. We all know what Idris Elba looks like. We all know what Jennifer Hudson looks like. Yeah, Ian McKellen, Junie Dench, more. And it's that sense of familiarity. We see them, we acknowledge them, we recognize them, but yet it's not them. Uh, yeah. And that's the part that I find is so jarring. But the thing is, much like anything, it's as you dive into it, you get used to it, except for that moment where I think Idris Elba, you know, toward the end, uh, as Sarah noted, uh, sort of appears, you know, uh, on the stairs. He, he sheds his clothes. Or he, actually, he's already shed his clothes at the beginning of that scene. Uh, and you're like, wait a second here. Now I'm starting to think about clothing in this film, uh, as opposed to certain characters having clothing and others not having clothing. So it's 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 the uncanny. This 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 merits like 18 articles just in the Uncanny <laughs> Valley and Cats. Um, and it's great to shift from. Uh, it's the digital technology, it's, di it's the digital and the human in a different interface, which I find worthwhile. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, so part of, sometimes the digital, sometimes the, the effects I think are, are augmentations of, of human movement. Um, there are a few moments where you can see that some of the jumps and pirouettes are, are augmented with rigging, right? So, you know, people are, spinning a couple of times and then they kind of keep going, you know, yes. and, and mm -hmm. perhaps rise. Um, uh, so that, that uh, to a certain extent, I think under undercuts, I found that the digital, my own take, um, I think the simplest way to understand Cats is that it's a chorus line with fur, right? Yes. In that it's a, it's a dance show that is really about the virtuosic, uh, uh, about dance virtuosity. And, and it's an excuse for one dancer after another to kind of do their thing. Mm -hmm. um, in different musical styles. And, and, and that for me was what gets lost in the, in the, in the film is that you don't, I mean, and there were, there were amazing dancers cast. I mean, amazing professional, uh, professional dancers. Um, you know, Robbie Fairchild, uh, plays Monkstrap and he's, you know, from New York City Ballet. Um, uh, the guy who is, um, Skimbleshanks, uh, uh, Stephen McRae. Uh, is is a is a wonderful dancer. I mean, and you know, Francesca Hayward is like an extraordinary, right? Uh, you know, uh, ball, you know, ballet performer. So, I, I found that it got in the way of the dance. So there were two things, right? The 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 text became too literal, mm -hmm. for me at least, and the dancing be became too figurative, right? Or too yes. too mm -hmm. fantastical. And so it sort of split the the whole kind of weird foundation of the of the of the original show which I, I think is is strange but can be quite fun and clearly appealed to folks um, uh, especially in in its earlier incarnations and it kind of took the film in two opposite directions simultaneously so that for me was really difficult to reconcile mm -hmm. and I think it's worth noting that the scale is off <laughs> uh, you know, so it's one of those things that as you're moving from scene to scene like it, it, it feels as though the cat figures are like significantly shrinking, you know, for some non-apparent reason. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, are they like mouse size tap dancing on on, on the railway, uh, and then others where it's like they're fully inhabiting a space. And and I think that's the part that's jarring as well. So it's movement alongside uh, how space is designed within particular settings. Uh, you know, sort of creates that sense of uh, disconnection. That was something I noticed. There's a scene with Rebel Wilson, and this is when I th this is the part, the scene that I think is kind of the most poignant because Rebel Wilson is hilarious. She can make anything funny, and unfortunately, this just this situation just defeats her. There's nothing. I think it's like James James Corden and Rebel Wilson, both really funny performers, but she's in this giant kitchen she's flopping around you're like oh man they never found this scene how did they make rebel wilson not funny and it's partly that the odd surreality of the set and the scale but there's something in there aesthetically that is interesting that i think is worth exploring in the rest of the film though we'll move on which is the the contrast and the the welding together of the human world versus the cat world like that's kind of what's going on in the whole film and you can think about it at the levels of the movement of the costumes of the set and I will confess now that there were I was caught off guard by how 
powerful I found the end of the film and Jennifer Hudson's version of Memory. Memory's an amazing song. It's this hype, and it's, again, ripped off from Puccini, and we shouldn't give Andrew Lloyd Webber too much credit, etc. But it's this incredible expression of pathos and this life that's, she used to be beautiful, she used to have everything, and now she's out on the streets, and it's just an unrestrained cry of bitterness and sadness at one's own state and it's deeply affecting and it was at that moment watching the film that it hit me that this is all this is a these are human stories this is about people and Sarah in your chapter you mentioned this that it's there's something about T.S. Eliot's poetry which is that sure it's about cats and cats are funny and they're silly and look at all they do but that but that you get deep enough into it and you start to recognize the human world that is the cat world as well I have a question for you for you guys, and, and I was sort of thinking about it because, because um, of course I, I I remember that that moment very well. But but when I saw it, um, there was a little bit of a battle going on in the theater, in in which there were some of us, including the the folks that I saw the the film with, um, who were laughing at much <laughs> of it, and then we got shushed by a couple of people in front of us who took great offense to our laughter. But there was, there was a, a, a critical mass of folks in the theater. So by the end, the, the tensions between the Cats enthusiasts and, the, and, and those of us who were more critical and even open in our, and then there was you know, some guy several rows up who just like, just re, I mean, we tried to stifle our laughter and he really did not. Um, and so, that for me, because of the dynamics in the audience, really undercut what any kind of emotional attachment that that might have have happened with that final song. So I'm, but I know I've you know in following many of our you know friends and compatriots on, on social media, I, I've heard numerous stories of I'm seeing this by myself. I am the, <laughs> my family and I are the only ones in the theater. So I'm curious um, uh, what your experience was. Did you see this in a in a an empty theater or did you see it with a with an audience and what was there what was that kind of collective response um i saw it in a movie theater a 10 30 p.m showing um and a few other people in the audience and it was mostly silent i did wonder about the other people there were a couple of moments you know i'm into the second hour where i i had to laugh i was i couldn't believe what was happening I laughed softly. No one shushed me. <laughs> the people were of an, the people I was there. I feel like people, anyone older than me who's seeing this is probably seeing it in a kind of nostalgic or just curious register. And then people younger than me, I expect are seeing it ironically. I remember my fellow, uh, uh, moviegoers being my age or a little bit older and, and silent and opaque in their register. Um, Harvey, I don't believe you saw this in a theater, right? I did not see it in a theater. I it was, um, I, I saw it in, in another oh. way. Yes. Um, but, but, well, you but, saw it uh, with your children, right? I saw yeah, it with so, my children. So, yes. I, I, I saw it with my children, and they, um, like I said, they, like, they, they were kind of stunned into silence for the most part, uh, <laughs> ex- except for my son, who, um, who was stunned into silence, and then, and then, as I said before, thought I had no plot. Uh, but I, for me, having not seen Cats before and not being deeply familiar with it, I was, a, I was conscious of what I viewed as a series of citations that may not have been citations simply because of the age of the piece, right? So, you know, when, when Memories came along, which is certainly an iconic song, you know, I was so familiar with that, that song out of context uh, that it almost seemed uh, like just kind of thrown in, for example. And then uh, with Jennifer Hudson performing it, my, my, my mind and my heart went to uh, her performance of Effie White in Dreamgirls, the film version of that. Mm-hmm. And then thinking, I felt much more sympathetic toward Effie White than I did uh, you know, toward this, 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 this cat character that has had limited screen size, you know. Uh, so that happened. And then when um, 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 uh, Taylor Swift was lowered, uh, thinking of uh, her character was that Bamba Lorena. 
Is that what it's called? Uh, that reminded me of Moulin Rouge. You're sort of thinking about sort of the descent mm-hmm. of, of uh, Nicole Kidman, or if you're on Broadway, uh, uh, you know, the, the same scene gets re- gets recreated on, on the Broadway production. You know, but that's one of those things where like one's mind, and perhaps it's just the, 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 the it, maybe it's a bit of pastiche as well, where you start taking things out of context uh, and then making new meaning out of text, out of sort of historical order. Uh, but that's what I thought about the piece. Well, I don't, yeah. I mean, in the stage version, I don't remember the descent. So I, it, it's possible that, that that was there. I think that may have been introduced in the context of the film exclusively, but mm-hmm. someone who has seen it more recently than I have. I did have the opportunity because when Cats was in movie theaters here in Toronto, it was also, there was a revival playing um, locally as well. So you could conceivably have seen the, the, the stage version and the film version in the same day. Um, I, unfortunately, I did not avail myself of that option. I have a question about cats, the animals, and is there an is there a sensible reason why this exists and there's not a comparable piece of art called dogs? <laughs> In other words, is there because you can you can take many of the elements of it it's 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 a it's a world of familiar domesticated animals they're a reflection of the human world because we're intimate with them we know them they know us um uh there's the elements of theatrical magic that come with the challenge of costuming them and coming up with the movement and the songs and the 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 verse that gets into their personalities but is there something is there a reason why cats becomes and let's be clear for a long time, the far and away the longest running musical on Broadway, some almost 7,500 performances total before it closed, 18 year run, which is a fact that Sarah cites in her um, chapter. Um, I, I don't want to answer my own question, but one of the reasons I loved your chapter, Sarah, was that it divulges the fact that early in T.S. Eliot's ambition to create this, it was it was a sort of dog and cat children's projects there's pollicle dogs and jellicle cats but then it ends up being just cats so let me ask you guys this why is there no dogs is this is there something about cats that makes this makes it uniquely possible for this to be a commercial juggernaut um or is it an accident <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> Watching you guys chew on that. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> I'm just going to bat it around over here for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I don't. I don't know. I. I would say that if I had to guess, that there is a way in which one thinks of cats as being more graceful mm-hmm. than dogs. So if you were to envision a a dance piece, you know, then that would align with that. And you know, there is a way in which. You know there is a close association with cats and women, mm-hmm. and you know you know so I could imagine that you know that sense of of imagining a piece that would uh, maybe as a concept you know f- feature um, a, a large number of women within the cast um, you know might. Um, Align with that. It, 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 it align with that. That's just imagination. That's something I think about. Like something of like Catwoman, for example. Think of the idea of um, oh, sure, um, the, a cat suit, uh, cat suit, or um, um, you know, sort of like there's a way in which yeah, you know, sort of adjectives of 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 movement are often used to sort of describe women's movement, right? You know, more so than men's movement. So, so it might be one of those things where within the kind of the cultural um, uh, sort of consciousness of how sort of people are then sort of mapped and imagined as animals. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it has a sense of of, of gracefulness, perhaps uh, that is different than dogs. Um, that's that's my guess. I, I really have no idea. Except that, I, well, I mean, not to. I think that is as plausible an explanation as any. But <laughs> I was um, just guessing. <laughs> but I mean, but but it, what's interesting is that. It's it's roughly fifty fifty, if not more. It's true. Yeah. Character cat characters coded as male than female, um, and in fact, the the Francesca Hayward um, character of Victoria was actually added in the revival. Um, I don't I don't remember that that character in that narrative was actually um, original in the original um, nineteen eighty one wow. Broadway Broadway version. So. Um, 
But the, the question of, of performing dancing animals is on stage is kind of interesting. And I, I would sort of call upon our colleagues who do work in animal studies and, you know, Kim Mara and Jennifer Parker Starbuck and a number of other folks whose names escape me at this moment. Um, but, you know, you've got the dancing mice and the nutcracker. There are any m number of films that have uh, animated animals and, and dogs, including, you know, that, that, that film classic Cats and Dogs. Um, in fact, but what's really interesting is to look at the sort of the life digital comparison, right? Because now they're, I believe they're doing, just releasing a new film adaptation of Jack London um, with Harrison Ford and, and a dog. I can't remember the title of the, is it, I don't know if it's In the Wild or the oh, it's Call, Call of the Wild, Call of the Wild mm -hmm. in which the dog is in, you know, you could think of in the context of 1980s films would be played by a trained dog, but here is is actually a, f a fully digitally animated. Um, and, and and at least at first uh, yeah. first glance seems to be sort of uncanny. So, I mean, I think there are interesting things. I mean, what you re the other piece of this going back in the history is that um, what Andrew Lloyd Webber really wanted to make a, a, a musical about was Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> um, he was really interested in Thomas the Tank Engine, that beloved yeah. British children. And in fact, his, his production company is called The Really Useful Group which is after Thomas the Tank Engine, who is a really useful little engine. And, and of course, subsequent to Cats, after the success of Cats, he went on to make Starlight Express, which is an even stranger musical um, yeah. about um, competing uh, sexualized trains. Yeah, that's um, a <laughs> uh, hat tip to Sarah for linking, sending to us the link to a Twitter stream um, we'll put it on the website uh, about Starlight Express and how really off the charts bananas that show is and how it was only made possible by the commercial pro uh, success of Cats. But I, I want to go back to this question because I think Harvey is definitely onto something. That I don't want to discount the many counter examples of talking anthropomorphized dogs that exist on stage and screen. But the phenomenon of people dressing up as that animal and that being able to support something of the, of the weight of cats, I do think it, there's some element of sexuality to it and sex appeal to it, though I think it might you might be able to um, uh, disassociate that from male or female gender per se. In other words, I think you could, there is something of... I think you're right that there is a kind of big diffused cultural identification of femininity with cat-like qualities, perhaps male and dog-like qualities as well, but that there's something interesting or appealing about both men and women dressing up and behaving like cats that wouldn't transfer to dogs. Um, and I'm thinking also, uh, incidentally, and I'll mention this at my own risk, of the furry phenomenon, the, 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 the performance-based subculture of people who enjoy dressing up like uh, sort of cartoon styled furry animals. I feel like there's a lot of cats and foxes in that world, maybe dogs as well, but there, there is something, I don't know, uh, sexual about cats that doesn't exactly trans, uh, transpose onto dogs. Well, I'll, I'll, certainly, well, I mean, I, I don't, you know, this is a family <laughs> podcast, but I think I can, you know, yeah, it doesn't like, take too like many 50... flights of fantasy to connect our listeners with the puns that immediately come to mind in talking uh, about the inherent yeah, yeah, sexuality yeah. Of, 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 cats. of a kitty cat uh, yeah. versus, and of course, again, referring to <laughs> musical theater, um, you know, we have the, the Kit Cat Club. Um, nice. and, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, right, there are also cat references in um, one, of the, one of Adelaide's performances in, uh, in the original Guys and Dolls. And I'm sure yeah. others can point me to, to examples. And you're right, we don't really have. But I mean, watching dogs dance is not is more in, in, incongruous. Yeah. And of course, going back to Elliot and and the cats, like the idea is that Elliot is seeing the cats as as performers and yeah. as kind of and so there's a kind of and 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 that's what what Weber, to my mind, builds on. Right, is the sort of you know yeah. inherent dancing is which is which goes to harvey's point of the inherent well, it's like gracefulness of a cat versus a dog and, and, yeah. and just to uh uh sort of uh shift a bit from panel's obsession with furries oh uh, my god <laughs> you know. i'm editing that, that is, it's not a thing it's not real <laughs> you know but i I'm, I'm looking right now at an article uh as an essay that we can put on the 
uh, podcast website uh, by Madison Arnold Serbo, uh, uh, who was a junior fellow intern uh, in science and technology and business uh, at the Library of Congress, uh, and who wrote as part of exhibition on um, on women and uh, a history of cats and science and society. And the argument that uh, Madison uh, makes is that the close association between women and cats uh, ties into a late 19th century idea of femininity and domesticity. You know that uh, you know that if you thought of the home, you know from that antiquated perspective as as the the realm of women, you know the, then cats you know I, were personified as having the sense of order and cleanliness, and uh, they were dutiful in in, uh, in a way you know, in, within the domestic yeah. setting. And that that then led to a series of associations between women and cats, and that you know, there were women societies that would have cat shows where, where where people would take their cats to these shows. So you know, over a century, there uh, became a number of of both private and public scenarios in which women were closely associated with cats, and I think that that then led to a larger uh, sort of performance culture in which you know the cat became synonymous with women. You know, and then you can also look at, as a metaphor around sexuality, you know, with the work of impressionist artists, for example, in which um, you know the cat stands in the black cat, for example, you know, stands in as uh, an object of desire, you know, uh, in place of of a body. Interesting. Okay, I was going to say that you could factor out the the femininity and felininity uh, link and say that. Another reason why this would work as theater and dogs wouldn't is something that Sarah also mentions in her article, which is that cats are kind of opaque. They're visually appealing, like just watching them behave is interesting for whatever reason, but that there's a there's a blankness to them or a mystery to them that dogs don't have, right? Dogs do all sorts of interesting things and appealing things, but you can see what a dog is thinking or feeling because they're communicative in that way, but that perhaps the cat, because of its blankness its opacity its um mysterious inner life something that um according to Beijing, uh t.s Eliot was, <laughs> was interested in makes this better raw material for theater and performance than people dressing up as dogs and acting like dogs which is annoying maybe I, I, that seems as plausible and and reasonable a theory as i have ever heard applied to cats so that that i you know I, Listen, I am this utterly is... convinced. I mean, I mean, the other thing to sort of look at is is cats and dogs as performers in in medial uh, context, right? So, like uh, dog videos versus cat videos, and um, and where what makes a cat video interesting versus a, a dog video. I mean, you know, again, I'm I'm talking really outside my realm of expertise here, but uh, but I think I think you're right. I think the and I wouldn't say it's that those animals necessarily perform differently, but how they have been culturally coded and acculturated to human and how we anthropomorphize different animals and attribute different qualities to them, um, I think certainly makes cats as a poetic exercise um, and also as a, as a vehicle for dance more appealing and more interesting than than dogs or other animals in that sense, right? I mean, like, you know, I, I can't imagine lizards. No. Although graceful. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like it just, you know, we just don't have the same kind of attachment. There's also the yeah. sense of the, I mean, going back to Harvey's point about the domestic, um, there's also, I mean, cats is also very urban. Yes. Um, and it's and it's very specifically urban, right? It is actually tied to tied to London and to London cultures, right? Which is why Gus the theater cat is really important, why the magic show cat is is really important, right? There's also a very strong sense of a, of a very particular city in a particular time and, and a reflection on a particular history. It's also extremely British. Yes, I will say that Gus, you know, Ian McKellen's character was my favorite character in this film. And there's just something about you know, with digital fur and all these things, the acting comes through. And I'm not sure if I'm just, you know, acquainted with uh, McKellen having performed so many roles, you, you know, emerging through costumes, you know, costumes where that's not serving as a barrier to his performance. Uh, but, you know, there was something there where I felt that the acting uh, was was front yeah. forward 
uh, as yeah. opposed to being covered uh, by the uh, digital fur. Yeah, if he can make, if he can say I'm Magneto and not get a giant laugh, he can also pretend to be an old cat and like lick a plate and also pull it off. Absolutely, I <laughs> loved, I loved the drinking from the plate. That that was like one of my favorite moments. All right, so we I think have reached a satisfactory research outcome on the question of cats. Let me just say I oh, really oh, yes. enjoyed watching the film. So yeah. I know there are a lot of people who are like, do not watch it, but I strongly I, encourage those who have not seen it to yeah. check it out, look at it, you know, listen to this podcast just beforehand yeah. to prepare yourself for it, but it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's it has a strong chance of ending up being a cult midnight screening type of thing. It is, it's not just that it's so bad it's good, it's like, it's a complex experience. I mean, you go through something, it changes you a little bit. Um, this film. I'm a better person because of it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, so let's 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 segue into our drafts. Um, uh, drafts listeners to on tap know are our thoughts in progress, our musings, things kicking around in our head that may be I don't know theater and performance studies related. Um, I will tee us off this time with a cats related draft, though drafts are not necessarily cats related today. Um, there is an old solo show by Brett Gelman. Brett Gelman um, is an actor, comedian, actors, or, or pardon me, listeners may know him as the brother-in-law on Fleabag, the terrible, terrible brother-in-law. Um, but when he was out of college, he began to sh- perform a show called 1000 Cats at the UCB. And it's him in a black leotard um, with cat ears doing a deadly serious solo show um, in which he performs the stories of 1,000 different cats. And there used, you used to be able to go online and find the half-hour version of it that I think Funny or Die produced and filmed in front of a big audience at a, theater, at, a, at a theater full of real spectators where the spectators were informed beforehand that this is a serious show and it's not funny and you need to watch it. Um, and I've looked online and it's hard to find, but, but um, if you haven't, seen or heard of 1000 cats it's it's worth checking out also well within the genre of what we're talking about today sarah what's your draft um so my draft is is going to slightly relate to cats though not on the theme of cats um but as i was watching cats and and sort of reflecting i also had occasion to watch the irishman mm-hmm. and 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 i think there is some really interesting comparisons between the dig- use of digital technologies in de-aging uh, characters, actors uh, towards ends of realism in The Irishman, and the use of digital effects in transforming human characters into feline ones in Cats. Um, and I actually wrote a blog post about this that sort of revisited some of my earlier thoughts on, on Cats and kind of connected them to The Irishman. Um, but, the, but the main idea is simply looking at how uh, digital technologies um, are complicating some of the ways in which we approach screen acting as an analogous to, th- to theater acting. And, and I think there's a really interesting um, shift that we're going through as the digital technologies become more sophisticated about what that means, what it means to be an actor on screen, what it means to be an actor in, uh, in media uh, and and to what extent that's about responding to and working alongside technologists and uh, digital fabrication. And it made me think about acting training more generally and, and theatrical, you know, theater is a place for training for industry um, that might be in theater production, but might also be in everything from video games to commercials to, to films and how the digital effects might be by be changing that. Um, I don't think I get to any fine conclusions in in the in the blog post, but um, but it was kind of an interesting thing to think through and to look at these two films that came mm-hmm. out very close to one another and and seem to be using similar kinds of technologies in 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 striking ways. Yeah, it's an interesting question whether or not arts programs are going to start to invest in the resources to actually train actors and. Um, computer scientists and engineers in how to work with this combination of art forms. 
Thank you, Sarah. Harvey, what's your draft? Yeah, so my, my dress, my, my, my dress, I'm <laughs> tired. My draft, my draft uh, ties in with uh, cats as well. And I'm thinking about uh, blackness in, in cats and how to think through and about the characters who are African-American who are, uh, or, or, or black identified are represented in this mm-hmm. film you know and and you think about it there's there's McCavity Idris Elba who's the villain uh there's um um uh Jennifer Hudson right who is the, really the down and out kind of you know neglected shunned kind mm-hmm. of homeless cat I'm not sure if that's the right phrasing of this but it's, she seems to be kind of just abandoned mm-hmm. um you know there's uh Jason um Derulo's character Rum Tum Tugger you know who you know the literature on cats it identifies as being kind of hypersexualized at least in terms of the Broadway production of yeah. of that role uh, and then of course you have um uh, the white cat right who is played by Francesca Hayward uh where you know blackness gets whitened you know so what, what does it mean to have these sort of four featured characters where it's like black like blackness is whitened Blackness mm-hmm. as villain, blackness as hypersexualized, or blackness as impoverished. You know, and I'm not sure, um, you know, how to think about that. And certainly, it's worthy of an article or or more. Yeah. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been a delight, uh, 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 listeners. We will be back um, with another episode in just a few weeks. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for streaming, and we'll talk to you soon. You're the cat's meow, there, panel. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.